61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we go with another edition of Inside EMS, the first one of the new year. And I want to thank everybody for joining us. I would also like to thank all the people who came onto our live show. I think we had really great success with that. We had a lot of good emails and people really enjoyed it. But before we go any further, it's time to bring in the guy, the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. How's that for the first introduction of the year, Kelly? That is awesome, man. Awesome. Great to be here 2015. I'm my, my New Year's resolution for this year, in case you're wondering, is to wear clothing whenever we record our podcast. I think that's that's one I, I might be able to uh, to live up to for 2015 you know it's not the fact that you don't wear clothing it's the fact that we're on skype and i've got to see it so every time i i try to get rid of that <laughs> that vision just doesn't go away that puts you that that puts you in the right frame of mind man you know your your creative juices get to flowing when you see my awesomeness on the camera there that's you know if only our viewers or our listeners could see it that's that's the only thing i regret Wait, that's a whole different type of movie, man. That's a whole different kind of show. We don't even want to go there. But so, um, twenty fifth pay per view podcast. That is the pay per view podcast. You're right. So, twenty fifteen. Uh, how's it going so far? It's going great, man. I've just, you know, it's, uh, as as is usual for me, I've got one deadline after another coming up. But hey, it was a good Christmas. We had a good uh, uh, the live show was uh, went off without a hitch, and uh, I'm I'm making use of some of my Christmas presents now. I'm, I'm uh, drinking drinking beer and and recording a podcast by the light of my uh, my leg lamp uh, that the good folks at EMS One sent to me uh, as recognition of my major award. So uh, I've I've got the mood set here in the uh, in the uh, Pitkin, Louisiana podcast studio. Yeah, it sounds very exciting the way you describe it. So with that, uh, since we got all this excitement going on, why don't you go ahead and give us our first news story? There is a there is a um, story here out of uh, Wisconsin about uh, firefighters and police um, getting new training and dealing with Alzheimer's and, and dementia patients. Uh, there were some instances there in uh, from the story from the Green Bay, Green Bay Press Gazette. And there were several recent assaults on officers, uh, firefighters, police officers. Uh, committed by people suffering from dementia, and they're they're learning to take different approaches to uh, uh, to calls involving these seniors. Uh, you know, and and rather than you know in dealing with with people with altered mental status, I've always said that you know law enforcement, uh, you know, God bless them, is that's uh, a pretty blunt tool for dealing with people with behavioral uh, issues. And not that they uh, not that they're they behave inappropriately, but uh, they don't have uh, training for for people with mental disorders quite often and, and dementia patients being one of them so uh those, those types of calls can can escalate and get out of hand and, and have bad results for all involved and uh these uh these folks are, are starting to get some new training uh in dealing with these dementia patients um i think it's, I think it's something that's, that's kind of underserved in in ems even chris how much how much uh training did you get in dealing with dementia and and alzheimer's patients 
Yeah, I got to tell you, man, I don't know that uh, I got a lot of training in it. I think a lot of the training uh, or a lot of the experience was just that is is dealing with those patients, you know. But uh, you know, as we as we deal with the Alzheimer's patients and the dementia patients, it, you know, it really does cause a problem for us, and it it does cause a problem for all first responders. And, and I applaud what's going on up there in Wisconsin because they're really setting the standard for others to follow. And, and this is one of those things that we know about. This is one of those things that we encounter almost on a daily basis, but it's not one that we train regularly, and these patients deserve the very best from us, and a lot of times we'll put our hands on them to take a blood pressure, and we're explaining what they're doing, but they don't really understand it, and they're not in their element, and we're in their house, and they don't know what's going on, and and uh, you know it causes a lot of uh, apprehension on the patient's part, so you know, kudos to the people up there in Wisconsin. Yeah, I think that's you know one of the the biggest things I've learned from experience in dealing with with Alzheimer's and, and dementia patients over the years is uh, I'm sure you've been in the same boat where you you go to a, an extended care facility and the and the staff will warn you oh watch out they're a biter or they're a hitter or or they're going to be a real handful and, and you walk in there and you you treat them like a human being um, and uh, they're no trouble at all uh, and I don't think it's so much that that uh, the the nursing staff in those places is doing anything wrong, other than the fact that uh, that they don't realize that the three quarters of the problem is just overstimulation. Uh, they get in and they they you know uh, handle the patients a little roughly or or cavalierly, and rather than just sit down, be gentle, uh, limit the stimulus uh, from additional people in the room, and, and just calmly talk to the patient and it's just de-escalate the entire situation and in a uh, law enforcement situation you know sometimes that's that you know that's not really intuitive that that you know you, you encounter a patient who's be- behaving bizarrely uh what's the first thing they do you know they'll, they'll call for backup and you've got more people and and uh ems and fire and and all these people crowding around the patient and call asking them questions and, and that sort of thing and uh Many dementia patients don't really react well to that, so it's it's good that the you know at least they're they're getting the training in in uh, de- in how to deal with these patients and, and how to uh, how to adapt their their uh, strategies to uh, to this particular patient population. So yeah, I agree with you 100. percent My story is going to go kind of the news of the weird, and and when I first heard this, I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but let's go to Sao Paulo, Brazil. And if you haven't seen this uh, picture on EMS-1, make sure you get over there and check it out. How's this for a miraculous outcome? It starts off. The Brazilian man, it seems that he was out uh, at a bar uh, having a good time. Must have been a grand old time. And I guess an altercation broke out, and this 39-year-old guy was stabbed four times, three times in the the torso. One wound uh, perforated the lung, and then once in the head. And, you know, we see these things all the time, but really what was interesting in this one, Kelly, was that the the knife was in this guy's head, lodged in this guy's head for three hours, and he didn't know it. And it's the whole process of maybe he was in shock. Uh, I'm sure there was some adult beverages on board, but that's got to be some headache. And four ibuprofen isn't taking that away. I can just imagine the guy, you know, Honey, I've got a headache. Let me lie down. Ow! Ow! Oh, what, what is that? I think uh, it seems like every time I lie down, it gets worse. That's right. I think the first time you put your hat on, you realize there's a problem. Yeah. Boy, my hat's not fitting right. It's it's cocked off to 
one side. I don't know why that is. Um, but, uh, yeah, three, three hours with a knife in your head and you just now discover it. But, you know, you, you hear these things. These uh, I'm sure adult beverages were probably involved. Uh, it's probably the, the setup to a really great joke. Guy walks into a bar with a knife in his head. That's um, right. We're just going to need to come uh, up with the ending you know, now. Yeah, we just have to come up with the punchline. Uh, and you should have seen the other guy. That's right. Um, <laughs> can you imagine the other guy in the fight? Uh, you know, has anyone seen my knife? Oh, oh, wait a minute. But if you look, if you look online, but if you look online, you're going to see that this knife was really impaled deep into this guy's skull, and I don't even know how he survived. I mean, because this was really, uh, I mean, check it out. I mean, they've got a really great 3D shot of it. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, it really is miraculous. But we appreciate these opportunities to have stories like this because it's just unbelievable. And, and how do you treat that? Can you imagine if you arrived on scene? How, how do you treat somebody with a knife in their head? I don't remember. You put a tourniquet on their neck? I mean, what do you do? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, I think you go back to, you know, you just uh, stabilize in place and, uh, and don't remove the impaled object. That's for sure. Uh, but this is, this is, one of the things I love about EMS, you know, uh, everyone else occasionally gets to experience in their in their lives uh, deja vu, but only only EMS gets to experience vuja day. That's that sensation you get when when you feel that nothing like this has ever happened before. This is a first time event. You know, you're seeing it for the first time. Uh, we get a few of those. You know, I've, I've you know I dealt with patients uh or i had a couple patients killed by an ostrich i've dealt with a man who walked around at a construction site with a uh a 10 penny nail in his head for four hours before he realized that he had uh uh, had it in there Uh, someone dropped a nail gun and it hit him on the on the helmet and he raised his head and cussed at the guy who dropped the nail gun and went back to work it wasn't until he went to take his hard hat off uh that he noticed that uh wow uh my hard hat is nailed to my head how odd um but a knife yeah that that's kind of hard to miss man that's that that tops my story by by a wide margin yeah i mean what do you do man i mean how come where were his friends at this point you know is it just that he's still hanging out he's in shock and did he go home is he by himself you know is he hanging out with his you know he's hanging out with his friends in the bar they're still drinking just go ahead and walk it off you're going to be okay i mean what's three hours how does this work that way yeah buy that guy another beer hey he needs one on the house he's got a knife in his head in our next store we've got a uh we've got the story of a uh a uh, unsanctioned mma bout with a private company doing ems standby there um uh and one of the fighters was killed and uh, county EMS officials now are filing a complaint uh, over transporting the the guy to what they said was the wrong facility. This happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Curtis Ambulance was uh, contracted to um, to uh, provide event services uh, at a fight at the Eagles Club back in March, and um, they uh, there was a uh, kickboxer uh, or an MMA fighter who was uh, apparently beaten up pretty bad in the uh, in the bout it was a three-round bout and his corner man was propping him up and slapping him in between rounds trying to keep him uh, keep him conscious and he collapsed shortly thereafter curtis samuel's paramedics uh, uh, waved off the uh, uh, milwaukee fire crew and and took 
the uh, injured fighter to uh, Aurora Sinai Medical Center, um, and he died a few hours later. In the medical, uh, from what the medical examiner said, was uh, death complications from head trauma, uh, and the the uh, county said that uh, he should have been taken to. Uh, uh, if I'm pronouncing this right, Fraudert uh, Medical Center, uh, which was their designated uh, uh, center for uh, severe trauma, head trauma. And um, they they say the, the uh, transport crew violated uh, regional and uh, regional protocols and not taking him to an appropriate facility. And uh, you read you read stories like this, and and that brings back to brings to mind that whole you know. Uh, thing we always talk about the closest appropriate medical facility and, and I don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback and, and judge the actions of another crew when I wasn't there but um, you know uh, uh, you take a unless the patient is is hemodynamically unstable it seems that the uh, the trauma center would be the best place for it we don't know what the guys uh, the fighters vital signs were when they when they got him out of the facility uh, but apparently the county medical officials thought that, uh, that their actions were inappropriate. Um, yeah, I mean, let that, that be a lesson to you guys. If you're doing an event, stand by. You know, have some have pre-planning and, and have protocols in place and, and figure out what you're going to do for each thing so you don't have to solve that on an ad hoc basis. You know, we're starting to see a lot more of these, these types of uh, fights popping up. You know, you and I kind of joked, uh, mm-hmm. Kelly, that, uh, you know, these, these trampoline places that are popping up. And, and uh, you know, we talked about one of the mm-hmm. EMS agencies that are going out and trying to figure out how they would extricate somebody from the, you know, from the uh, foam pit. And, you know, and really, you know regardless of what happened up there and again i'm with you we can't play armchair quarterback we've got to now start thinking about developing these policies and start training our people that if they go to an mma fight if they go to these trampoline places if they're going to wherever it is now with all these extreme sports are we really ready to uh take care of those folks and and uh hopefully the answer is yes but we may get caught with our pants around our ankles yeah yeah, and, and reading between the lines, that may have been what happened here. Like I said, I, I'm not going to judge the actions of the crew, but this generated a lot of uh, a lot of uh, rigorous uh, debate uh, on social media when uh, when EMS went and posted it to their Facebook page. And, and you'd be surprised how many people, uh, how many EMS professionals out there are still in this, uh, still repeating the dogma. Of, well, you got to go to the closest facility. Uh, when that's not necessarily so. Uh, the closest facility, uh, if the patient were in cardiac arrest, uh, of course, the closest facility is probably the, the best choice. Right. Um, but, but, but if he's not hemodynamically unstable, going to the closest facility is not going to fix this guy's problem. If he needs a neurosurgeon, you need to drive right on past right. Uh, and, and get them to the appropriate facility. Uh, right. You've slowed down care by probably 70 minutes or more uh, just to, to set up those those transfers and everything and um, you know have those you know little pre-planning goes a long way right so, so let me go ahead and give you mine I got one more that uh, I want to give you and I, I was really interested that when I read it uh, to, uh, to chat about it with you and this goes back to January 3rd AMR closes ambulance billing operations in California and yeah. the billing and customer service positions are to be handled by overseas contractor in India and the Philippines and this comes out of Modesto, California. And, you know, I guess EMS now is not safe from the outsourcing bug. And uh, this one also got a lot of uh, a debate on the social media once it was posted. Uh, people saying that they should take American out of their name, that this is just going to, uh, you know, cause some challenges. 
And, uh, you know, I was really interested to know what your co- thoughts were on this because I, I, I got to be honest with you. I mean, when it comes to the bottom line and saving a buck, uh, you know, as an EMS leader, it, it's my job to be as practical as I can while we're still able to get the equipment that we need for our folks. But I got to tell you, I, I don't know that I ever uh, uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, billing could be done outside the United States. Uh, I think that uh, that's some of the, the challenges that we've had that have that have put the United States, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, not in a good position with all the outsourcing that's gone to India and the Philippines, as well as, you know, a lot of the corporations that are going to Mexico. So they're able to uh, build the, uh, you know, their their wares uh, cheaper. And uh, I got to tell you, Mm -hmm. I'm not really happy with this story, but uh, I was interested to know what you thought. Well, you know, bottom line is, is is AMR is a business and they're going to make a business decision that, that fits, uh, that fits their needs. Um, the question, the, the question I have is, is, is the holding company that owns AMR, they, are they an American based company or, or are they an international or global, uh, global firm? Uh, you know, with, with these large, uh, ambulance conglomerates and a lot of them being uh, are owned by by holding companies with significant foreign investments you know that keeping these jobs stateside may not be a priority for them um obviously you know they're not going to be able to outsource the actual medic jobs and the and the the bedside care and and that sort of thing but uh yeah the fact that they they were willing to take the step uh, they had to have known the reaction it would get from uh from ems uh professionals in the united states they had to have known that this would uh would would you know give them a fairly large black eye and to them i'm guessing it was worth it it's a business decision you know and and as long as we we continue at least in the private ems you know, bottom line is AMR is a business, uh, and as long as their major revenue stream is for fee from transport from CMS, uh, and the the profit margin is razor thin, um, then you know decisions like this are going to going to keep coming. One one thing it brings to mind is is, is uh, you know how much of, of that billing uh, that outsourced billing could be kept. Uh, stateside if their revenue collection and and uh, revenue generation were a little more efficient what I'm saying is is you know we were just uh, we just got a directive from from our billing people uh, on how much money the Borg loses just trying to gather demographic and insurance information and it's a significant chunk of change uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just to hire a company to look up uh, Medicare and Medicaid and insurance numbers, insurance policy numbers, uh, things that that our uh, our crews could do, uh, and that's uh, you know for my employer that that's money that goes back into our profit sharing. But for for a company as large as AMR, presuming that uh, they have the same problem with their providers, uh, with their crew members, uh, how many millions of dollars a year could they spend if if people actually took the time? to uh, gather billing information rather than just write, you know, insurance information not available in the chart. I guess it opens up a lot of, uh, you know, uh, questions about how that exactly is going to run. 
you know, when we think about, uh, are they just getting the billing after the tickets have been scrubbed, or are they going to be sending tickets back to the crews, or, you know, how is that going to work? And I think that that's a, a real interesting uh, a conundrum, but uh, everybody's going to be keeping their eye on AMR in this process, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think if it works out, there's going to be other organizations that are going to follow suit. We're going to have to, uh, you know, see how that works out and see if it's the future, but let's go ahead and transition, Kelly, and talk about our clinical issue. Let's do it. You know... When we think about the clinical issue, it's all about delivering the best patient care that we can. And I think that there's been a paradigm shift over the past uh, few years, and I've certainly seen it when we first started to get our electronic charting. It seems that we're not putting the patient in the patient assessment anymore. And it seems that we're spending more time with our computers and we're spending more time, we've forgotten the introduce yourself, we've forgotten the Mm -hmm. let's get down on, on the patient's level. Let's go ahead and, and inter, you know, let's go ahead and tell them what we're going to be doing before we do it. And it seems that we've gotten more robotic with our patient assessment rather than it being really personal. It's become very, very technical. And it's not just limited to to EMS. It's it's all across healthcare. Yeah, especially in 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 the hospitals and in in physicians' offices. If you've gone to see your doctor lately, chances are the conversation and the history was taken over the you know looking over the top of a laptop computer. Some of that is is to you know some of the blame you can shift to directly to the the government for for tying so much uh, reimbursement to electronic health records and and the fact that that most of these EHRs are written by uh, IT geeks with no concept of of how people provide health care so they're not really intuitive interfaces but as far as EMS goes what 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 I see is is these these kids are graduating from paramedics with no no real concept of how to talk to another human being. That and uh, they suffer from analysis paralysis. They, they, uh, it, it's much more comforting and it's much easier for them to look at a machine and ask a question here and there rather than sit down on the side of the bed and, and take a pulse. You know, and, and, and hold a patient's hand and, and actually get a history from them. That's something that, you know, I don't like to call myself old school, but uh, I learned how to do all those things before the technology was available to me. And that's still the, the focus of my assessment. My division of duties with my with my uh, partner, uh, I always have an EMT partner, is that I, I talk to the patient, I gather a history, uh, and they do the assessment. The first thing I do is walk in and say, "Hi, I'm Kelly with uh, with uh, the Borg, and here's my this is my partner Rebecca, and and we're going to be taking care of you today." And shake hands and introduce yourself. You know, uh, the thing is, is you, they don't. I think part of it is is uh, they're unsure of themselves, uh, and and they're they haven't had enough patient contacts to realize that that the most valuable information you get is is gleaned from the patient history. Uh, they're all about the technology. Uh, and and we say things like uh, treat the patient, not the monitor, but we only pay lip service to it. Uh, I can't tell you the number of, of assessments I've seen by paramedics done with uh, where the vast majority of the history questions were spoken facing the cardiac monitor with their back to the patient. Right. When in reality, you know, I only put those I only put those machines on when I need information that's going to that's going to affect my treatment, uh, and and a whole lot of information can be taken from that global survey, uh, and just sitting down and, and shaking someone's hand. Uh, something I stress in my classes from the very beginning of, of EMT class: right. walk up to the patient, 
introduce yourself, shake hands, and and get what you can, and see how much information you can get just from that simple initial interaction. Um, what's the patient's mental status? What's their skin right. tone? What's their skin color? <laughs> and that sort of thing. You know, I think that there's I think that there's a lot that goes into this. And one of the things that I try to instill on with folks is, you know, what's the best skill that you have? And a lot of people will say IV skills or inhibition skills, but it really is your patient assessment skills. And, you know, when you can listen oh, yeah. to a patient's heart and hear an S3 gallop and you know that the, what that's going to lead to or or you can put your stethoscope on somebody's lungs and know what's going on in there, you know, but I've learned more on those medical calls and and talking with patients than I learned on any other gunshot, stabbing in the head, um, trauma calls that we've ever had. And I think we, we've got a lost art here. And, you know, our purpose was to establish a rapport with somebody. We have a short amount of time to establish a rapport, uh, to give them the best care that we can and get them to the hospital. And it just seems that, uh, and the stories that I read and, and the peers that I talk to in the United States, it seems that we're making our patients numbers more than we're seeing them as patients and we really have to get back to the fact of you know talking to them and it really comes back and i ask this question all the time would you want to be treated by you you know a lot of times it'll raise an eyebrow and people will say no or would you want to be treated would you want your uh the way that you treat people uh to have your mom treated that way but but i think that that's a big telling thing would you want to be treated by you and we have to remember that that you know one of the worst calls that i ever um investigated was a person came to my office and they said i want to complain about a crew and i they went uh, pick up my dad he had chest pain and uh, he wanted to go to this hospital. They wouldn't take him. They didn't put him on a monitor. They didn't start an IV. And he was having an inferior lateral MI. Now, usually, I would investigate this call from start to finish. I would look at how it was dispatched. I would look at how they routed to the call, so on and so on and so forth. Because if, if this part was bad, then this part must have been bad, too. But I didn't investigate this one iota. And the reason for that is this was an employee complaining about another employee. And the point that I want to make with this story is we don't know who we're treating. And in this case... One of our paramedics mm -hmm. was treating the father of another paramedic, and she had to come and complain about his care. That was the worst complaint I ever got in my career. Oh, yeah. You get so many, you never know who's watching. But we often see these new medics come out of school, and, and their approach to assessment is the shotgun approach. Uh, throw every diagnostic test we have at them, and hopefully we'll catch something, uh, and one of them will be appropriate. Uh, my approach has always been just the opposite. Take a good history and physical exam and only use the diagnostic material, uh, diagnostic tools available to me uh, if they're going to alter or, or determine my care in some way. Uh, I don't do a blood glucose on everyone. Uh, I don't put a cardiac monitor on everyone. Uh, I don't do a 12 lead on everyone. I do 12 lead on, on things that might be cardiac etiology, uh, including, you know, the, the ambiguous things like the weakness and the 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 respiratory distress and the sudden onset of nausea and vomiting, you know, uh, things like anginal equivalents. But ultimately, I'm not going to, to use my machines until I have a good idea of what is going on with the patient. You see these, uh, for example, you know, you walk in for your respiratory distress call um, and the patient's got this, this extensive history of, of CHF and COPD and, and all these kind of things. 
one of the best things you can do to determine whether you're dealing with CHF exacerbation or COPD is walk in, say hello, and shake hands with the patient. Skin's warm, probably dealing with COPD exacerbation asthma. Skin's cool and clammy, probably dealing with acute pulmonary edema and CHF exacerbation. But that's simple a thing. Skin signs, uh, how the patient reacts to you, all those sorts of things uh, are simple little things that we, we often take for granted, but tell us a, a wealth of information about the patient if we would just take the time to uh, gather those things. Um, yeah, we, we, we spend way too much time pecking at a clipboard and, uh, and, and inputting things on a monitor and staring at squiggly lines. When, when what we should be doing is uh, smiling to someone and, and, and talking to a patient. Uh, what is it that Tom Dick said in his book? You know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we lose sight of that fact. Uh, we, we, we need to put the patient rapport back into the patient assessment. And I guarantee you, the patients don't know and don't care if you're Tom Boothalay, EKG Yoda, or if you're, you're an airway wizard or if you can have memorized the PDR and can, can uh, spit out any drug formulary uh, and all the indications and contraindications, they could care less. What they care about is whether you can seem, you seem concerned with their welfare uh, and whether you were nice to them and, okay. and if the ambulance was smoother. Yeah, and one of the Go things ahead. that one of the things that I think is is important to know here. One of the best compliments that I ever got. Of course, you don't get this as very few and far between that someone sits down and writes a letter to your organization for the work that you did. A lot of the kudos that I've gotten from patients wasn't because I used a cardiac monitor, wasn't because I used uh, my IV skills. It was because I held their hand. It was because I listened to what they had to say. It was because I, I made them feel like they were the most important person at that point in time. And that's how you build rapport. That's how you get them to trust you. I mean, again, mm -hmm. would you want to be treated by you? If you're laying on that cot and you have to have an IV put in place and you have to have an adjunct airway placed, you know, would you want to be the one who's treating you? And uh, I think that says a lot, man. And I think that, you know, I'm with you. We have to put the patient back into the patient assessment and remember what we're trying to do. And it's not about that you're getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning for the knee pains. You know what? If you're complaining about that, don't work a 24-hour shift because that's just the nature of the beast in our business. And yep. I don't care if they're white. I don't care if they're black. I don't care if they're yellow. I don't care if they're rich. I don't care if they're poor. I don't care if they smell. They get the same care across the board. And sometimes I think we forget that. And sometimes I think we take umbrage with the fact that this frequent flyer has called us three times already today. And, you know, we could be doing better things. Well, what's better things? Sitting down, watching TV, waiting for the next call to come. And I think it's that attitude and that yeah. mentality that has now moved us away from the importance of the patient assessment and establishing a rapport with those patients. Chris, let me ask you, how much how much do you think that patient-centered approach that that holistic approach to uh, to assessment comes with with experience. Uh, do you think my theory is we we crank these kids out of paramedic school and EMT school and and we have we have spent a, an inordinate amount of time teaching them a process of patient assessment. Step A, step B, step C, the ABCs. Your initial assessment, your primary survey, your secondary survey. We've taught them to do this by rote. 
to get through a skill station uh, at a state uh, ex- or a national registry exam, we've taught them the science of patient assessment, but we haven't taught them the art. They know how to go through a series of steps. They know how to, to be a linear thinker, go down this list, but they haven't quite grasped the concept that, that truly being a good provider means that you have to be a, a lateral thinker. You have to, to absorb yeah. information from uh, multiple sources all at once uh, and be able to, to suss that out in your mind, figure out what's going on with the patient. You have to be able to mentally multitask right. uh, and, and, and you know, not subordinate the, the, patient's, uh, the patient interaction to uh, all the technology. Uh, do you think that comes with time or, or is that something we can be teaching from, from the get-go in, in EMS training? You know, I think that the experience plays a big part in that. And that's where I go back to the debate with you on you should work as an EMT before you become a paramedic, because a lot of that is going to come from that. And when you come from the classroom (laughs) and go right into paramedic school, do you have the skills necessary to conduct an appropriate patient assessment? And, you know, but one of the things that I have to tell you, I will I will answer that for you by saying probably not. But the thing is, is, is if you're if if you're going to say that experience is valuable, you're assuming that the people they're gaining experience from do it the way they're supposed to, or are they or are they watching patients who are uh, are they watching paramedics who are doing it the wrong way? Uh, good experience is, experience is only valuable if it's good experience. You know, but here I mean, still the bottom line has to be this. How do you want to be treated if you were in the same situation? It doesn't make a difference what paramedic A is doing. It makes a difference as to how you are going to conduct your patient assessments. It's how you are going to deliver care to that patient. It, you know, I, I've, I've worked just like you with a lot of EMTs and a lot of paramedics who were horrible and shouldn't have even been in this career field. But that doesn't mean that my care was going to be any different. And the foundation, Kelly of treating patients like you want to be treated, treating them like they were your parents, treating them like they were your grandparents, that's something to be said. And with that in mind, you can never go wrong. You're right. And, you know, I, I think I'm going to say something heretical here. I think the the EMS profession in this regard could learn a lot from the nursing profession. Um, the, the things about all their tenants, about patient send patient-centered care and, and, and holistic uh, nursing and, and that sort of thing. You know, EMS training in general tends to look at people, uh, tends to look at patients as, as very expensive, interesting skills mannequins on which to perform procedures. Yet nursing takes the, uh, takes a more holistic approach to care. Uh, I think we could learn a lot from the nursing model and, and you know, watching how these, uh, how nurses are trained to do assessments. It's not focused in the way that we need it to, but as far as addressing the patient's mental and emotional needs uh, and, and putting the patient back at the center of patient assessment, I think they probably do a better job at it than we do. We, we perhaps a hybrid of, uh, of you know, uh, steal a little bit from the from the nursing textbook on, on how to do a, how to do a good patient assessment and and give it some you know give it a, a life saving focus might be a, a better way of doing things. What do you think? Yeah, I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you 100%. And I think that there are a lot of lessons that we can take from our peers in the hospital. And uh, I think it's a good way to, uh, you know, move along. And, and maybe that's more time that we need to spend in those common areas and, and actually maybe yep. even spend time up on the floor as part of our initial training and as part of our uh, continuing yep. education. But, Kelly, it sounds like we got a clinical issue. Yep, that's it. We do. And, and, and what you said hit the nail on the head on the floor. 
get up on the floor, not from the ER nurses and the ER doctors. Their focus is too close to ours, and they're overworked and harried, uh, <laughs> and and they suffer from the same problems that we suffer from quite often it is is you know they're they're too busy treating the clipboard but uh we can learn a lot from those four nurses those uh, in those med surge units uh who still are uh are, are taking care of the the patient's mental and uh, emotional needs as well yeah i'm with you 100 yep. percent. good clinical issue man put the patient back in patient assessment right so i i guess let's put the wraps on uh show number one of 2015 and uh next week we're gonna have a really special show for you we're gonna have a debate and uh we're really excited oh, yeah. to uh do that but uh, kelly let's go ahead and uh, give them the ending and let's go on home guys let's uh thanks for tuning in to inside ems our first show of 2015 and one of uh, many we hope to to do as always we're interested in your comments suggestions uh, ideas for clinical topics and clinical issues uh, and ideas for guests and, and news of the day email us those suggestions at the show at ems1.com and for co-host chris sebel and myself thanks for tuning in to inside ems we'll catch you next week